Lucifer Means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Weirwood Compendium Part 5 To Ride the Green Dragon Hello, friends, patron supporters, and myth heads of the Starry Host. It is I, Lucifer Means Lightbringer, and I welcome you to Weirwood Compendium 5. Today's general topic is Azor High, gaining access to the Weirwoodnet, and though we've talked about this before, today we'll be saddling up the Green Dragon and riding deeper into the net than ever before. We're going to follow up on Weirwood Compendium 1, the Grey King and the Sea Dragon, and make a bit more sense of the Ironborn mythology that we went deep on in that episode. The green dragon symbolism we'll explore today will reinforce the idea of Azor High as one who gained access to the weirwood hive mind, and it will build on the symbolism of the storm god's thunderbolt, the fiery and wrathful sea dragon, the grey king's weirwood boat, weirwood submarine, and his mermaid wife, and all the rest. Best of all, following the trail of the green dragon will eventually lead us under the sea itself, where we'll discover a fantastic new symbolic metaphor that unravels quite a bit about the Weirwoods and the Greenseers. To really get the most out of this episode, you should definitely have already read or listened to Weirwood Compendium 1 through 4, as well as the three Weirwood Goddess episodes. If it's been a long time since you've listened to the first four Weirwood Compendium episodes, I'd probably recommend re-listening to those before doing this one, or right after listening to this one if you're listening live as we will be drawing heavily from all that stuff. It's also not a bad idea to listen to the first two Signs and Portals episodes if you have not done so. As you may have noticed, I've been droning on and on about this thing called the Fire of the Gods all throughout the Weirwood Compendium and probably elsewhere. It's kind of the main theme which unites the Grey King and the Azor High myths, a Luciferian or Promethean pursuit of the Fire of the Gods. This fire seems to take two forms in A Song of Ice and Fire— the moon meteors, of course, and the power of the weirwoods. The Grey King mythology, again and again, sends us the message that the Grey King possessed both of these. When we discovered that there are burning ash tree symbols, meaning weirwood symbols, at every scene that depicts the destruction of the moon and the forging of Lightbringer, uh, in a grove of ash, that was another big clue about a link between the weirwood net and Azor High. The inescapable conclusion here is that there is some connection between these two forms of the fire of the gods, between the moon meteors falling to earth and man gaining access to the weirwoodnet. A connection between Azor Ahai's blood magic ritual with Nissa Nissa and the idea of Azor Ahai becoming a fiery greenseer who enters the weirwoodnet, quite possibly by force. To put it simply, the myths of Grey King and Azor Ahai both have them calling down the meteor fire from heaven, and through explorations of their symbolism, we've discovered that they both seem to be green seers, or, or something. I always add a little caveat there, because I'm by no means sure that we're talking about the standard sort of green seer. What I see is that Azor High's blood magic ritual with Nissa Nissa, the weirwood goddess, seems to have permanently altered the weirwoods in such a way as to allow mankind access to the hive mind collective consciousness that we refer to as the weirwoodnet. Azor Ahai slash the Grey King may have been the first human greenseer or the first of a new kind of greenseer. 
As we know, obtaining the fire of the gods always comes with a cost. Indeed, in Martin's world, all magic comes with a cost. And to be honest, and I've said this before, I think Martin is really more interested in exploring and writing about the cost of magic than the glory of magic itself. Azor High seems to have underwent transformation, most likely an actual death transformation, as we've seen in past episodes. And the Grey King, who lived for a thousand years and became as grey as a corpse, almost certainly underwent transformation through his possession of the fire of the storm god and the sea dragon, however many different things that concept may refer to. One thing is quite clear. Possessing the living fire of the gods will always change you irrevocably, for better or for worse. With both Azor High and the Grey King, this transformation process seems to have been initially triggered by the moon meteors, the more literal manifestation of the fire of the gods. Azor High represents the sun, which was turned dark by the smoke of the meteor impacts, and in the legend itself, Azor High supposedly becomes a hero and forges Lightbringer when the moon cracks. In the Great King myth, it's the thunderbolt which sets the tree on fire, and if the burning tree represents the weirwoods and the thunderbolt represents the meteor fire from heaven, then we're left with the idea that the meteor impact had some effect on the weirwoods, and that it enabled the Grey King to obtain the divine fire of heaven. Most of all, the burning tree represents the weirwoods in an activated state, which can transfer that fire of the gods to mankind. We know that to attain this weirwood fire, the living fire of Naga, the green seer must join himself to the tree. So really, we can say that the burning tree in the Grey King myth actually represents the tree joined to the green seer. That's why we have trees with hands and faces and people who turn into trees. It's a symbiotic relationship which flows both ways. And somehow it was set on fire. As always, you can find the matching text to this podcast at luciferMeansLightbringer.com, and that's also where you can find the link to our Patreon campaign, links to blogs and YouTube channels of all my friends, and other random things like our Con of Thrones 2018 coverage. Performing our vocals today will be a very special guest, Melanie Lot7, a.k.a. the child of the forest known as Feathercrow, the Weircat Dryad, and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Capricorn. Melanie is a hardcore myth head who started her own channel recently, and her first video is about the silenced woman archetype in A Song of Ice and Fire, which, as I'm sure you can quickly see, dovetails nicely with the Nissa Nissa weirwood goddess archetype, who so often gets that red smile like Lady Catelyn. It's a sensational debut from a promising creator, and she just so happens to have a fantastic reading voice, as you're about to see. So thank you, Melanie. And please, everyone, do her a solid and subscribe to her new channel, Melanie Lot 7 all spelled out, and the link is on my website, of course. Thanks, as always, to John Walsh for our flamenco music, and to Stanley Black for our intro music, and thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for writing a song of ice and fire. Thanks most of all to our generous and loyal patrons, whose support, quite frankly, enables me to do mythical astronomy. If you enjoy the podcast and have the means, please consider joining the starry host and propelling the show onward and upward. Finally, I've launched a separate YouTube channel for the Between Two Weirwoods live panel discussion show, just to sort of keep things separate, and also to safeguard against future YouTube shenanigans, since if one channel has an issue, I can use the other one as a backup. The link is on luciformeanslightbringer.com, or just search for Between Two Weirwoods with two as a digit. Please be sure to subscribe to the channel so you will get a YouTube notification when we go live. Thanks, everyone, and here we go. 
you're going to Burning Man. This section is sponsored by the Patreon support of Sir Dionysus of House Scaladon, wielder of the milk glass blade that just made, and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Virgo and Libra. Turin the Elf, Tavern Keep of the Wine Spring Inn, Master of the Abyss, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Cancer, and Sarah Stark of the Wolf's Blood, the Shining Hand of Phasephoria, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Sagittarius. That brings us to the point where we left off at the end of the Grey King and the Sea Dragon episode, where we were talking about the symbol of the burning tree, and discussing scenes where, right smack in the middle of Lightbringer forging metaphors, we seem to have fiery sorcerers waking from burning wood and burning trees. We looked back over many of the most prominent Lightbringer forging scenes in the books, and we found that indeed, burning wood seems to pretty consistently trigger flames, which are described as either fiery dancers or fiery sorcerers. Just as I interpret the burning tree as a weirwood joined to a green seer, I interpret these fiery sorcerers that wake from the burning wood as representing green seers who have undergone some sort of fiery transformation and bonded with the weirwood tree. They are two different ways of getting at the same idea, a fiery sorcerer merged with a tree or a tree that looks like a sorcerer. Because these fiery sorcerers and dancers always appear right when Lightbringer is forged, we can deduce that they are of course an important part of the larger Lightbringer picture. And all that fits very well with the idea that the Storm God's Thunderbolt was a moon meteor which somehow created the burning tree, or perhaps you might say the burning tree sorcerer. The hallmark of all these fiery sorcerers and dancers awoken from trees are the robes of red, yellow, and orange fire, and sometimes smoky cloaks. They all seem to model the clothing of the red priests of R'hllor, and priestesses of R'hllor, who are of course actual fire sorcerers, who dress in red, yellow, and orange attire, designed to look like writhing flames, with some going so far as to tattoo their entire faces with masks of flame. Melisandre in particular is always described in these terms, with robes, hair, and even eyes that look like flame, and indeed, Melisandre is actually undergoing some kind of real transformation where she's no longer sustained by sleep or food, but instead by the power of R'hllor, which means fire magic. In other words, there appears to be a literal truth behind the idea of a sorcerer who is fire-made flesh, which is what all of these scenes clearly imply. Listing in brief, those scenes were the alchemical wedding scene in A Game of Thrones, number one, where Daenerys woke her dragons. We got both the fiery dancers and the sorcerers in that one. First off, it said that the flames writhed before her like the woman who had danced at her wedding, whirling and singing and spinning their yellow and orange and crimson veils, fearsome to behold, yet lovely, so lovely, alive with heat. And right after she sees them, she then speaks of flames which appeared each one a sorcerer robed in yellow and orange and scarlet, swirling long, smoky cloaks. We also had logs exploding as the fire touched their secret hearts, with the idea being that logs with hearts and secrets evoke heart trees, and being touched with fire suggests the burning tree of the Grey King myth, which, again, alludes to weirwood trees. That tree was set ablaze by the thunderbolt, which I claim to be a meteor dragon, and accordingly... The secret hearts of the logs in Drogo's pyre are touched by the fire right at the moment that one of the dragon's eggs, the green one, as a matter of fact, cracked open with a sound loud and sharp as thunder. So we've got a thunder dragon touching the secret hearts of the logs. I just love that. 
Last but not least in that scene, Danny saw the reborn spirit of Drogo rising through the flames, and he was wearing the familiar fiery regalia. His clothing took fire, and for an instant the cowl was clad in wisps of floating orange silk and tendrils of curling smoke, gray and greasy. So there we have it. We have the cowl Drogo. He's clad in wisps of floating orange silk and tendrils of curling, greasy, gray smoke. And this is highly significant as Drogo's reborn spirit, which Danny associates with the Red Comet, remember, is a fairly straightforward manifestation of the reborn Solar King. And that's exactly who I believe the fiery sorcerer woken from the burning tree is. First and foremost, this is Azor Ahai being reborn through the Weirwits. All right, so number two was the burning of the Seven at Dragonstone in A Clash of Kings, where Mel and Stannis do their little Lightbringer reenactment. The morning air was dark with the smoke of burning gods, meaning that this bonfire is literally the fire of the gods. Yes. And then it says, The burning gods cast a pretty light, wreathed in their robes of shifting flame, red and orange and yellow, dun-dun-dun. Those burning gods were the wooden ones, made from the old wood of the masts of the ships which first brought the Targaryens to Dragonstone. Ships owned by Targaryens are dragon ships, and since the sea dragon's bones actually turned out to be a weirwood ship, we can see all dragon boats as symbols of the sea dragon, especially when they catch on fire. The fact that they are not only burning wooden ships, but burning wooden gods, spells out the idea that they possess the fire of the gods, as the sea dragon and the burning tree of the Grey King mythology do. And indeed, the burning statues of the Seven are made from masts, and thus also symbolize trees, burning trees, like the one in the Grey King myth, which really refers to weirwoods. To make matters worse, Stannis literally pulls Lightbringer from the burning wooden sea dragon gods, cluing us into the idea that all of this is tied to Azor High and Lightbringer, the other form of the fire of the gods besides the weirwood net. These first two scenes, the alchemical wedding and the burning of the seven on Dragonstone, are probably the most vivid and complete Lightbringer forging metaphor scenes in the series to date, and they both contain clear depictions of our fire sorcerers emerging from burning wood. Number three. Scene number three is Arya, Yorin, and the Night's Watch recruits in the abandoned holdfast near Harrenhal, besieged by Amory Lorch. Sir Amory Lorch. I guess we should give him his titles. The soldiers were depicted as having fiery armor and swords, while the flames themselves were personified as people, dragons, fiery fingers, fiery tongues, and the like. The payoff line was... Arya saw a tree consumed, the flames creeping across its branches until it stood against the night in robes of living orange. That's a tasty one, because it literally gives us the burning tree dressed as a fire sorcerer, with the fiery soldiers in this scene reinforcing the idea of people made of fire. Hall itself is a tremendous symbol of the destroyed second moon, as I've mentioned a few times. It's a black stone burnt by dragonfire, and it was built by someone with black blood, as Heron's line was called. And it's uh, currently haunted by fiery ghosts, as we saw in the Weirwood Goddess series. Although I am going to come back to Hall, there's more stuff to mine there. Additionally, because Black Heron cut down weirwoods to make the rafters and beams of Hall, when Aegon the Conqueror set fire to the place with Balerion's black fire, we did actually have burning weirwood symbolism going on. The God's Eye, right by Hall, is an even more amazing bundle of symbolism, which leads us to the Eye of Odin and thus to Green Seers, so the location of this burning tree wearing the robes of fire is highly significant in its own right. 
All right, scene number four was John and Corrin half-hand and the Frost Fangs in A Clash of Kings, right before they're caught by the wildlings and John is forced to kill Corrin. John went to cut more branches, snapping each one in two before tossing it into the flames. The tree had been dead a long time, but it seemed to live again in the fire, as fiery dancers woke within each stick of wood to whirl and spin in their glowing gowns of yellow, red, and orange. This quote is especially notable for its flagrant incorporation of resurrection into the mix. The tree had been dead a long time, but seemed to live again in the fire. A resurrected fire sorcerer may be exactly how we're supposed to think of Azora High, one who wakes from a burning tree, or perhaps we might say that he lives again by merging with the symbolic burning tree known as the weirwood. By the way, if John is resurrected on a weirwood funeral pyre in The Winds of Winter, well... That sure would be neato, wouldn't it? That's a little bit of tinfoil for you. I mean, after all, the other time that we see a ranger burned on a pyre, this happens. Sam was red-eyed and sick from the smoke. When he looked at the fire, he thought he saw Bannon sitting up, his hands coiling into fists as if to fight off the flames that were consuming him. But it was only for an instant before the swirling smoke hid all. That's kind of the ultimate point of the burning people and the sorcerers emerging from these pyres. Sure, one of them is Azor High, but the rest are probably the last hero's group of green zombie Night's Watchmen, who are most likely fire undead people similar to Beric, or similar to how John will be after he's resurrected. Hopefully, you will remember the important parallels between Beric Dondarrion, the burning undead scarecrow, and the Burning Scarecrow Night's Watch Brothers in John's Azor High Dream, as that was one of the big clues that the Last Hero's companions are meant to be fiery undead people, what George R.R. R. Martin has called fire whites. Their resurrection also seems to have something to do with weirwoods, or with being skin changers like John, hence the Green Zombies theory, so it makes a lot of sense to associate this group of fiery people who emerge from the burning trees we see at the Lightbringer forging scenes with our Green Zombie Night's Watch Brothers. In fact, the Burning Scarecrow Brothers are themselves tremendous symbols of burning tree people. They're made of wicker and straw, and they're mounted on a vertical wooden pole like a tree trunk. When they're set on fire, they become a burning tree person wearing robes of fire, very like Arya's burning tree that wears robes of living fire. So those are our first four examples of symbolic fiery sorcerers, with the fifth one being Moondancer, the Green Dragon, whom we're going to talk about quite a bit in just a minute. But wouldn't you know it, since I wrote this essay, I found more examples of the phenomenon. That's right, there's always more. One of them came at Daznak's pit, where Danny mounts Drogon for the first time and flies away from a pit of fire and blood and death. This scene is in many ways a mirror to the alchemical wedding, so it figures to see fiery sorcerers here. In fact, Danny's recollection of Daznak's begins with a comparison to the alchemical wedding. She's thinking back to the moment of walking into Drogo's pyre, and it says, The fire burned away my hair, but elsewise it did not touch me. It had been the same in Dasnak's pit. That much she could recall, though much of what followed was a haze. So many people screaming and shoving. And then skipping forward a few lines, it says, She remembered the dragon twisting beneath her, shuddering at the impacts, as she tried desperately to cling to his scaled back. The wounds were smoking. Danny saw one of the bolts burst into sudden flame. Another fell away, shaken loose by the beating of his wings. 
Below, she saw men whirling, wreathed in flame, hands up in the air as if caught in the throes of some mad dance. It's the standard formula. A dragon hatches as our incarnation of Lightbringer being forged, and at the scene we find a lot of death, fire, blood, and of course, people wreathed in flame and doing some sort of shamanic mad dance. That's a nice one. We've got the dancing and the fiery robes. And you may also notice that the dragon is struck by wooden bolts from a crossbow, which smoke and burst into flame, evoking the thunderbolt and the burning tree imagery. Perhaps even better, even better than Daznak's pit, yes, I found a little something about burning tree dragons, which I think fits very well here. All right, get ready for a little... Aegon the Unworthy talk, everyone. This is going to be good. The World of Ice and Fire tells us about the follies of King Aegon IV Targaryen, also known as Aegon the Unworthy, who apparently fancied himself as some sort of Westerosi Leonardo da Vinci, eventing all sorts of crazy contraptions and whatnots and thingamajigs. In an effort to conquer Dorne, which was still unconquered in his day, Aegon the Unworthy commanded his pyromancers to build me dragons, which the World of Ice and Fire describes as Wood and iron monstrosities fitted with pumps that shot jets of wildfire. His foolish plan was to bring them down the boneway to attack Dorne. But... They did not come even that far, however, for the first of the dragons went up in flames in the king's wood, far from the boneway. Soon all seven were burning. Hundreds of men burned in those fires, along with almost a quarter of the king's wood. So although we do not have burning sorcerers, we do have burning men, burning wooden dragons, and burning trees in the Kingswood. The line about soon all seven were burning is very, very similar to the phrasing in the burning of the seven seen on Dragonstone, where the things being burnt were also wooden dragons, after a fashion, being seven wooden gods made from the mass of Targaryen ships, which are wooden dragons and therefore sea dragon symbols. The phrase Kingswood suggests that the burning trees belong to a king, and this in turn makes us think of the Grey King's burning tree. It's a burning tree that belongs to a king. Going further, the trees in the Kingswood belong to a dragon king, just as the Grey King is a sea dragon king and quite possibly Azor High himself, or his son, or brother, or cousin, or uncle, or nephew, or something. Uh, essentially, uh, don't forget bastard brother. Essentially, we have the same idea presented twice, side by side. The Dragon King's trees and the Dragon King's wooden dragons are burning together, giving us a reference to both Grey King fire myths, the sea dragon and the burning tree. What makes all of this corroborate even more strongly to the Grey King myths is that the whole wooden dragon idea, which gave us a forest full of burning trees, was actually Aegon the Unworthy's second attempt to invade Dorne, and his first attempt also parallels both Grey King fire myths. Yes, it's true. It comes in the paragraph prior to the last one we pulled from the World of Ice and Fire. Fortunately for the realm, the king's plans to invade Dorne in 174 AC proved a complete failure. Though his grace built a huge fleet, thinking to succeed as Darren the Young Dragon had done, it was broken and scattered by storms on its way to Dorne. In other words, we have sea dragons in the form of ships owned by Targaryens, a reference to the idea of the sea dragon and the specific theory that the bones of the sea dragon naga are actually the fossilized remains of a weirwood boat. Additionally, the wooden sea dragons were destroyed by storms, which serves as a sort of 
more vague reference to the other Grey King myth, that of the storm god's thunderbolt, which set the tree on fire. Last but not least, the idea of a dragon trying to attack Dorne, specifically with these various symbols of the sea dragon and the thunderbolt, works as a parallel to the idea of the hammer of the water's moon meteor striking Dorne. It's very like the time when moon maiden Marcella Baratheon slash Lannister is sent down to Sunspear with ships named King Robert's Hammer and Lion Star, a symbolic depiction of moon maidens, fiery stars, and Storm King hammers falling on the arm of Dorne. So there's one last set of parallels between Aegon the Unworthy and the Grey King. The Grey King was said to have left behind 100 sons who engaged in an orgy of kinslaying until only 16 remained just as Aegon the Unworthy, famously, legitimized his bastards on his deathbed and in doing so, doomed the realm to five generations of Blackfire rebellions, which certainly qualify as orgies of kinslaying and tragedy. At the end of his life, Aegon the Unworthy even sounds a bit like a green seer chained up to the weirwood roots. He was grossly fat, barely able to walk, and some wondered how his last mistress, Sarenai of Lys, the mother of Shira Seastar, could ever have withstood his embraces. The king himself died a horrible death, his body so swollen and obese that he could no longer lift himself from his couch, his limbs rotting and crawling with flesh worms. Ew, gross. I know. <laughs> uh, but uh, consider the symbolism here. Aegon the Unworthy is actually Bloodraven's father, of course, and Bloodraven's lover is mentioned as well, and that's, of course, Shiera Seastar. Now, besides the grossly fat thing, Aegon seems to be symbolizing a green seer like Bloodraven. At the end, he cannot leave his couch, just as a green seer cannot leave his throne. And the flesh worms crawling through his rotting limbs are a call out to the white weirwood roots that pierce Bloodraven's rotting limbs, which Bran describes as grave worms. Or Bran describes the, uh, the weirwood roots as grave worms, so... It gives you the idea of worms piercing and crawling through Blood Raven's flesh. I know, gross, but there it is. It's a very strong symbolic likeness. Now, all of this, the parallels to the Green Seer chained to the throne, the simulation of the Grey King myths and his attacks on Dorne, they seem to act as a corroboration that the Grey King was indeed a dragon person, which is another way of saying that the Grey King is either a Zor High or one of his kind. And yes, don't forget. Uh, just as I believe that Azor Ahai's Lightbringer was a black sword, and just as the ancient Ironborn were said to wield sorcerous, soul-drinking black weapons, King Aegon the Wormy possessed the Targaryen ancestral sword Blackfire, a black magical sword in its own right, which is an important symbolic representation of Lightbringer. Aegon the Unworthy also gave birth to the line of rebel dragons known as Blackfires when he gave the Blackfire sword to Daemon Waters, who then became Damon Blackfire, meaning he had one usurper son with a Blackfire sword and another son who was a dragon-blooded greenseer who commanded the Night's Watch. That's uh, a lot of symbolism, <laughs> but let's keep moving. There was one other example of a fiery being wearing fiery robes from the Grey King and the Sea Dragon episode, and that, of course, is the one we're going to expand on the most. It wasn't a bonfire or a burning tree which looks human. Instead, it was a green dragon, Moondancer. During one of the epic dragon-on-dragon -dragon battles in the Targaryen Civil War, known as the Dance of the Dragons, the dragons Moondancer and Sunfire collided in the skies over Dragonstone in a wonderful demonstration of the 
moon wandering too close to the sun, and sun and moon merge as one aspects of the Lightbringer fable. Moondancer and Sunfire slam into each other violently, then tumble from the sky, burning and bleeding like the bleeding stars of fire which the dragons represent. Their flames light up the sky like a, quote, second sun, and Moondancer becomes robed in fire and smoke, which is, of course, the trademark garb of the dancing fire sorceress. Moondancer only becomes robed in fire after she kisses the sun and drinks its fire. The name of the dragon Sunfire literally spells this out. So this is really a pretty exact and detailed depiction of the chain of events of Lightbringer's forging. Since we looked at this scene in Weirwood Compendium 1, we've discovered the archetype of the Weirwood goddess, who's always marked by the, quote, Weirwood stigmata, which makes her look like a Weirwood tree. Bloody hands, bloody mouth, or red smile throat wound, bloody or red eyes, and bloody or red hair. We can see that our green moon-dancing dragon is blind and bloody as she joins Sunfire in a death grip during their fall. In other words, she's a moon-dragon figure getting weirwood stigmata in the moment that she joins with the solar dragon, just like Thistle getting the stigmata when Veramir's spirit enters her body. And you'll recall that Thistle did a mad dance as well, as it says, her legs jerked this way and that in some grotesque dance as his spirit and her own fought for the flesh. This is more confirmation of the idea that the meteors set the weirwood net on fire, in a manner of speaking, by altering them so that man could enter. Because our weirwood goddesses always gain their bloody faces when the fiery green seer spirit enters them. Moondancer fairly literally drinks the fire of sunfire and then gains the stigmata. Once again, we see that the weirwood tree symbol is created when two things merge together, the sun and the moon, or the green spear spirit and the tree. The name Moondancer specifically calls out to the fiery dancers which appear in the flames during John and Danny's wood-burning scenes that we just discussed, and conveniently links them to the moon which cracked from the heat of the sun. And once again, the fiery sorcerer seems to be Azorahai reborn in this scene. Azorahai Sr. is Sunfire, Nissa Nissa is Moondancer, but Azorahai Reborn is the child of both and is thus represented by their merging, which lights up the sky like a second sun. That would be the sun's sun, like Quentin Martell, as the sun of Dorne. Accordingly, the post-collision Sunfire and Moondancer both show us Azorahai Reborn symbolism after they collide. Sunfire has one eye torn out, giving him one-eyed Odin and Bloodraven symbolism, and he also has a severe neck wound where Moondancer bit him, simulating the hanging wound of Odin, which we also see on Beric and a few others. As for Moondancer, well, she's a fiery, dancing green dragon born of the sun and moon, manifesting weirwood stigmata, who's wearing the signature fiery robes of the fiery sorcerers that we've been following. The stigmata and the fiery robes both imply transformed Moondancer as entering the Weirwood Net. Now, given the presence of this green seer symbolism, the fact that the dragon is green does seem like it might be a clue about a dragon person who is a green seer. I introduced this green dragon idea in the Grey King episode, but let's follow up on it now and take a look at the green dragon that we have in the main story, Regal, as well as a few other green dragon ideas, and see if there are any clues about green seer dragon people. Spoiler alert, there are such clues, as you might expect. The trail of the green dragon slithers this way and that, so we'll be side-branching into topics such as Quentin the Dragon Tamer, the Cranogmen, and extinct houses of the Riverlands. 
And next week, the pureborn of Karth. We'll also be talking about Danny's unfortunate son, Rego. And we'll even return to the familiar scene of the alchemical wedding to harvest yet more symbolic gold. We might even find ourselves lost in a dark forest of the mind if we're not careful. A thunderous dragon. This section is brought to you by Katharina of the Many Tongues, the Twin Claw, Righteous Sword of the Small Folk, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Gemini. By Sir Dale the Winged Fist, the last scion of House Mud, and captain of the dread ship Black Squirrel. And by Sir Stoyles of Long Branch, seeker of pale blood. The first clue about green dragons and fiery green seers actually comes at the alchemical wedding, and I just mentioned it. It was the green egg, Regal's egg, which cracked as loud and sharp as thunder. This creates a potential parallel between the thunderbolt burning tree myth and the thunderous awakening of the green dragon. That was also the moment when the fire touched the secret hearts of the burning logs, as we talked about, which again evokes the thunderbolt setting fire to the heart trees of the Weirbudnet. Twice in one paragraph, the green dragon's awakening is tied to the thunderbolt and the burning tree, myths which we now understand to refer to mankind gaining access to the Weirwoodnet. That's a great tip-off that the green dragon is a symbol tied to green seeing and, obviously, dragons. Rhaegal the Green Dragon is named for Mr. Dead Prince Charming himself, Rhaegar Targaryen, as Daenerys tells us in A Clash of Kings. I would name them for all those the gods have taken. The green one shall be Rhaegal, for my valiant brother who died in the green banks of the Trident. Rhaegar is, of course, a prime symbol of the black dragon aspect of the Azor Ahai reborn archetype, so the idea of him being reborn as Rhaegal suggests Azor Ahai being reborn as a green dragon, whose awakening is like thunder. Rhaegar was struck down and transformed by the Storm King's hammer, a great analog to the Storm God's thunderbolt which transformed the Grey King. The idea of a black dragon becoming a green dragon through the Storm God's strike would again seem to suggest that Azor Ahai's calling down the thunderbolt meteor fire may have allowed him access to the Weirwood Net. It may have enabled him to become a green seer. Rhaegar's death also parallels the slaying of the sea dragon myth, of course, because Rhaegar is knocked off of his horse, out of the heavens, in other words, and then falls into the river trident, into the green banks of the river trident. That's a drowning moon meteor symbol, and his fabled rubies tell the same story, flashing like fire before dropping into the water. The rubies are sometimes pulled out of the water, it should be noted, just as the ironborn myth implies that they harvested meteor stone from the sea, perhaps in the form of the sea stone chair itself. Setting the oily black chair aside, which is probably really hard to do since it's probably really heavy, the point is that Rhaegar's death acts as the beginning of his symbolic transformation into Rhaegol, the green dragon, and it parallels both of the Grey King fire-stealing myths, the thunderbolt and the slaying of the sea dragon. Heck, even the fact that the battle itself happened in the river Trident names it as a sea battle. It's a battle in a river for domination of the Trident, the traditional symbol of the sea god's power. Now, getting back to the naming of Regal the Green Dragon, we should note that this was actually Danny's second attempt at naming someone or something after Rhaegar. The first was her own unborn child, whom she named Rego. She was, and by the way, can we get a poor Rego Twitter handle? I mean, if we're going to do poor Quentin, we should have a poor Rego. Make it happen, someone. 
He was supposed to be the stallion who mounts the world, but was born dead in the tent of dancing shadows instead. Rego's symbolism, however, is quite intriguing and parallels that of the green dragon Regal in many ways, which are, of course, suggestive of green seer dragons. The giving of the prophecy of the stallion who mounts the world is a big Regal scene, but it starts with Danny. This is her weirwood stigmata scene. She's eating the heart of the wild stallion, which represents her as the moon eating the comet, or as receiving Azorhai's fiery sword. Or in the reproduction context, she is receiving the fiery dragon seed of the Solar King. That's what this ceremony is about, creating favorable omens for Rego, her unborn child. Check her out as a pregnant moon full of moon blood. Her handmaids had helped her ready herself for the ceremony. Despite the tender mother's stomach that had afflicted her these past two moons, Danny had dined on bowls of half-clotted blood to accustom herself to the taste and Eerie made her chew strips of dried horse flesh until her jaws were aching. There is definitely heavy weirwood stigmata happening. No steel was permitted within the sacred confines of Ves Dothrak, beneath the shadow of the Mother of Mountains. She had to rip the heart apart with her teeth and nails. Her stomach roiled and heaved, yet she kept on, her face smeared with the heart's blood that sometimes seemed to explode against her lips. Ah, it's exploding. That's always a good mythical astronomy tip-off. Yeah, I know it's gross, but think about symbolism and exploding meteors. So, Danny is the spitting image of a weirwood tree. Get it? Spitting image. Bloody hands and mouth, devouring raw flesh. Immediately after, her stigmata is spelled out again as she declares herself pregnant, which reemphasizes the horse heart eating as the impregnation of the moon and the weirwoods with the Zorahai's fire. And finally it was done. Her cheeks and fingers were sticky as she forced down the last of it. Only then did she turn her eyes back to the old women, the crones of the Dosh Kalin. Kalaka Dothrei Miranha, she proclaimed in her best Dothraki. A prince rides inside me. She had practiced the phrase for days with her handmaid Jiki. The oldest of the crones, a bent and shriveled stick of a woman with a single black eye, raised her arms on high. Kalaha Dothrai, she shrieked. The prince is riding. Then a deep-throated warhorn sounded its low, long note, which gives us the ubiquitous magic horn symbol that we still have to explore fully, but which I have hinted at as being connected to the idea of magic sound in general and Nissanissa's cry that broke the moon. In any case, after the horn blast, we see a terrific example of the rising column of smoke and ash as a weirwood tree symbol that we sketched out in, in a grove of ash. The eunuchs who served them threw bundles of dried grasses into a great bronze brazier, and clouds of fragrant smoke rose up toward the moon and stars. The Dothraki believed the stars were horses made of fire, a great herd that galloped across the sky by night. As the smoke ascended, the chanting died away, and the ancient crone closed her single eye, the better to peer into the future. It's no accident that we get one-eyed Odin symbolism and an attempt to peer into the future in the same paragraph with the clouds of holy smoke ascending up towards the moon and stars. This is a nod to the burning ash tree slash mushroom cloud symbolism that we often see at Lightbringer bonfires. The reference to the smoke rising to the stars and moon kind of seals the deal. 
This is definitely a ground zero impact zone bonfire, the ones which clouded the sky with smoke during the long night. Together with Danny getting the stigmata and the symbolic impregnation talk here, we can see that this is a great depiction of Nissa Nissa going into the weirwood net symbolism mixed with Lightbringer forging moon impregnation symbolism. With all that said, then comes the prophecy of the stallion who mounts the world, who is supposed to be Rago. The very notion of a stallion who mounts the world should absolutely make us think of Yggdrasil as Odin's horse, since it's a tree which serves as a symbolic horse, which allows Odin to traverse the nine realms of the universe, which is very like mounting the world. That's astral projection, a sort of flying between the worlds and over the world. The idea of a stallion who mounts the world may well be playing on this, since the green seers are already imitating Odin and mounting the weirwoods in pretty much the exact same way that Odin mounts Yggdrasil. Basically, this is a Rego is a green seer clue, in other words, or at least Rego represents a green seer, I guess we should say. And then we get another clue along these lines when the one eyed crone says, I have seen his face and heard the thunder of his hooves. That's a great match for Regal the Green Dragon's egg cracking as loud and sharp as thunder. The arrivals of both Rego and Regal are heralded by thunder, in other words. The crone also says that Rego will ride as swift as the wind and will be as fierce as a storm, once again evoking the storm god and his thunderbolt. Regal does this too. When Quentin Martell tosses a sheep to Regal in the pit below the Pyramid of Marine in his mad attempt to steal a dragon, Regal snatches the sheep in midair. His head snapped round, and from between his jaws a lance of flame erupted. A swirling storm of orange and yellow fire shot through with green. Regal, the stallion who mounts, rides as fierce as a storm, and Regal, the green dragon, belches a firestorm both of which remind us of the storm god's fire that creates burning trees. Then we have Daenerys Stormborn, who is fire-made flesh, and who steps into the firestorm, calling to her children at the alchemical wedding, right after the green egg hatches like thunder and the fire touches those secret wooden hearts. This is the green dragon's egg, and everything here is about storm and thunder. So again, this is the thunderbolt coming from the moon and setting fire to the tree, with Danny herself serving as the fire sorcerer emerging from the burning wood, possessing the fire of the storm. Similarly, Rego, the stallion who never was, also manifests clear fire sorcerer symbolism. It's basically a round robin of symbolism, as it always is. Although Rego never lived outside the womb, we do get a glimpse of what he might have looked like in Danny's Wake the Dragon dream in A Game of Thrones, which she has in that tent with Miri and the Dancing Shadows as she gives birth to Rego. She could feel the heat inside her, a terrible burning in her womb. Her son was tall and proud, with Drogo's copper skin and her own silver-gold hair, violet eyes shaped like almonds. And he smiled for her and began to lift his hand towards hers, but when he opened his mouth, the fire poured out. She saw his heart burning through his chest, and in an instant he was gone consumed like a moth by a candle, turned to ash. Rego, for a moment, takes on the Burning Man persona. Oversized goggles, silver spandex biker shorts, nipple rings, and a bedazzled fedora. Oh, wait, no. Not that Burning Man. I'm talking about Rego, as a person made of fire, of course. A Burning Man. Take note of the burning heart, 
a call out to R'hllor's fiery heart symbol. Rego is consumed by fire, implying death, but since we are led to believe that Rego's spirit or life force has somehow gone into the dragons or helped to awaken the dragons, only death can pay for life being the operating principle here, we should also see this as a fiery death transformation for Rego. He's a burning man that awakens the green dragon or becomes the green dragon. The same idea is implied with the line about Rego's being turned to ash. He's an Azor high figure who undergoes a fiery death transformation and ends up inside the Weirwoods, which are the Song of Ice and Fire version of the great ash tree Yggdrasil. Rego is going into the grove of ash by turning to ash. And after all, the one-eyed crone did peer into the rising smoke of the future and then heard the thunder of Rego's hooves, which is almost as if Rego was thundering from inside the smoke column, from inside the weirwood tree, like a green seer, calling down thunder, and so forth. So, Rego is a dragon made of fire, and his namesake Rhaegar Targaryen also happens to be associated with the idea of a burning man too, via his appearance in that very same Wake the Dragon dream where Danny saw Rego consumed by fire. And she saw her brother Rhaegar, mounted on a stallion as black as his armor. Fire glimmered red through the eye slit of his helm. Danny lifts the visor of Rhaegar's helm a moment later, only to discover her own face, which signifies that she has become the last dragon, or is about to, something that she did when she emerged from the funeral pyre as a manifestation of Azor High Reborn, the original Burning Man, and she was covered in ash, if you recall. As Danny walks into the pyre, she proclaims that she was fire-made flesh, just as the dragons are. So that all checks out. Rago is made of fire. Rhaegar is made of fire. Rhaegal and Daenerys are fire-made flesh. It's Azor High Reborn, everyone. Warrior of fire. Dragon of the Weirwood Net. Just as Rago the Burning Man has parallels to Azor High, so does Rhaegal the Green Dragon, as we've seen with Rhaegal's ties to Thunder. For example, just like Azor High and the Grey King, Rhaegal the Green Dragon is a moon killer. In A Dance with Dragons, Daenerys goes to visit Viserion and Rhaegal in the pit under the pyramid, and we get this description of Rhaegal. Rhaegal, still chained, was gnawing on the carcass of a bull. Aha, we're well familiar with the slaying of the bull as a symbol of sacrificing the moon. I don't think I even need to recap all the many times we've seen that. Here in the pit, we catch the green dragon, red-handed, see what I did there, killing and devouring a bull. That, of course, is very consistent with the idea that a green seer dragon broke the moon. Those moon meteors were, in turn, described as dragons, thunderbolts, sea dragons, hammers of the waters, and, of course, a sun spear. And then, not three paragraphs after Rhaegal is eating the bull, we get a sun spear. Rhaegal roared in answer. And fire filled the pit, a spear of red and yellow. Viserion replied, his own flames gold and orange. The color of the fire of each dragon tends to match the coloring of their bodies, with gold sometimes added in. So, for example, Drogon is black fire shot through with red, or sometimes shot through with red and gold. Viserion, the white and gold dragon, often has pale fire or golden fire, and we just saw that Rhaegal's fire can be orange and yellow shot through with green a moment ago. But sometimes George likes to play with the colors a little bit to suit a given scene or to suit 
symbolism, of course. In this scene inside the pyramid, George chooses to describe Regal's fire as red and yellow. I believe that that is because he called the fire a spear. And to really imply it as a sun spear, it would need to be red and yellow, which are the colors of the Dornish sun transfixed by a spear sigil. So what I'm seeing here in this scene is a green dragon devouring a moon bowl and then throwing a fiery sun spear, right when Quentin Martell is hanging around. All right, it's, it's, this is one of those clues which by itself you know, wouldn't be something that I'd base an entire theory on, but as always, I am looking for repeated manifestations of the same pattern to make the best interpretation. And this one fits in pretty well with the green dragon waking with thunder, riding or flying like a storm, creating burning men and killing lunar bulls. Now he's throwing sun spears. And speaking of sun spear and green dragons which create burning men, you know we have to talk about Quentin, the would-be dragon tamer who tries to ride the green dragon and becomes a burning man instead. We're obviously going to continue to talk about Regal, but let's make this a section break since we're going to switch over to focusing on Quentin now for a minute. A dragon in the deep wood. This section is brought to you by the Patreon support of Matthias Mormont, the sea goat of the bottomless depths. Count Magpie the Rude, the Dinky Giant, Hornblower of the Oslo Fjord, the Lady of Stellar Reason and Maleficence, and Lord Brendan Brewer of Castle Blackrune, Sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithomancers Guild, Keeper of the Buzz. My favorite description of Rhaegal's green scales comes in A Dance with Dragons as Quentin, the soon-to-be-burning man, beholds the green dragon in the pit. Melanie, take us away. Two eyes rose up before him. Bronze they were, brighter than polished shields, glowing with their own heat, burning behind a veil of smoke rising from the dragon's nostrils. The light of Quentin's torch washed over scales of dark green, the green of moss in the deep woods at dusk, just before the last light fades. Then the dragon opened its mouth, and light and heat washed over them. Behind a fence of sharp black teeth, he glimpsed the furnace glow, the shimmer of a sleeping fire a hundred times brighter than his torch. The dragon's head was larger than a horse's, and the neck stretched on and on, uncoiling like some great green serpent, as the head rose until those two glowing bronze eyes were staring down at him. Green, the prince thought. His scales are green. Regal, he said. His voice caught in his throat, and what came out was a broken croak. Frog, he thought. I am turning into frog again. The food, he croaked, remembering. Bring the food. <laughs> Such a good quote. That's a, that's a fun one. So this is particularly tasty. Because not only do we have a reference to the idea of a dragon in the deep woods with the description of Regal's green scales, but consider the green as moss language. Jojen's eyes are described as green as moss, and Jojen is, of course, a green dreamer. Similarly, when Bloodraven describes the ways in which those with green sight are marked, he describes their green eyes with the same language, almost exactly, as green as the moss on a tree in the heart of the forest. In other words, the description of Regal's green as moss scales evokes the eyes of green seers and the forest itself, specifically 
the deep woods at dusk just before the last light fades. That last bit suggests the long night, which of course I am now claiming was brought on by green seer dragons, or you might say by dragons going into the weirwood net, perhaps. And speaking of shifty frog eaters like Jojen, I've mentioned before that there is a frog eater joke in the middle of the scene because Quentin's nickname is Frog. And as he's trying to say, bring the food, in the middle of the confrontation, his voice croaks and he thinks to himself, I'm turning into frog again. Thus, Quentin is the froggy food, and the dragon is a would-be frog eater. And if you're thinking of comparing Danny's dragons eating Quentin to Bran eating Jojen in paste form, yep, Bran is a symbolic dragon and a frog eater, but that's a tale for another day. There are other ties to the Cranog Men with Quentin, too, because his hair and eyes are described as the color of mud. And Barristan has a lengthy inner monologue about how Quentin is like mud, and about how mud is useful for growing crops and all, but Danny wanted fire, not mud, and Dorne sent her mud. Quentin is a mud man, as well as a frog, in other words. And mud man is one of the names the Ironborn use for the Cranog Men. The Mudmen, who are also the Frog Eaters. That makes at least three allusions to the Cranog Men with Quentin's symbolism. He's a frog, he's a Mudman, and he's trying to ride a dragon whose moss-green scales match the eyes of Jojen. So, what's the point of all Quentin's allusions to the Cranog Men, you're asking? Well, Cranog Men almost certainly interbred with the children of the forest in the past, which is why the Green Seer gifts run so strong amongst them. Therefore, I think the likely purpose behind tying Quentin to the Cranogmen is so that he can be used as a proxy for a green seer trying to ride a green dragon. I don't see what else it could be, really. And because Quentin has that distant Targaryen ancestry, which is how he tries to talk himself into this mad folly, what is actually being suggested here is a dragon-blooded, children-of-the-forest-blooded green seer person trying to ride the green dragon. Quentin, of course, fails miserably in his attempt to ride the dragon. Instead, he is roasted by one. Rhaegal, the green dragon, of course. In other words, the frog with a drop of dragon blood became a burning man when he called down the fire of the green dragon. I'll quote the last lines of his Dragon Tamer chapter here. Quentin turned and threw his left arm across his face to shield his eyes from the furnace wind. Rhaegal, he reminded himself. The green one is Rhaegal. When he raised the whip, he saw that the lash was burning. His hand as well. All of him. All of him was burning. Oh, he thought. (laughs) Several recognizable Lightbringer symbols here. The burning whip, which matches Drogo's fiery whip that appears to crack open the first dragon's egg. The fiery hand, a familiar symbol that evokes the weirwood leaves as burning bloody hands as well as the fiery hand of R'hllor. The furnace wind then gives us more firestorm imagery, which is a nice opposite to the cold winds that the others bring. And the left arm, burnt by fire, might suggest the dragon meteor which struck the arm of Dorne. In fact, it does, because earlier in this chapter, Quentin thinks to himself, I am Dorne, on two different occasions. And then he gets his arm burnt, so his arm is the arm of Dorne. So what we have in this scene is a green dragon blasting the arm of Dorne with a spear of dragonfire, a sun spear. As a complement to this idea, Quentin's repeated choking and croaking in this scene implies a strangled neck, as in the neck of Westeros, which was strangled by the hammer of the waters. And of course, all of Quentin's frog and mudman symbolism also 
points to the neck. You'll recall the many times that we see arm and neck wounds together in a Lightbringer forging incident, such as in the Mountain and the Viper and the Hammer of the Waters episode. And here we have another, a neck that croaks like a frog and an arm of Dorne burnt by dragonfire. It doesn't get any more detailed than that, folks. We've mentioned before that Quentin himself actually has weak bloodstone emperor symbolism, too. He's the sun's son, as prophesied to Daenerys by the undying of Karth, an idea that is at the heart of the Azor High Reborn as a second sun, S-U-N or S-O-N, symbol. That, of course, is the idea that Lightbringer and Azor High Reborn being one and the same was the sun of the sun and also lit up the sky like a second sun, as Sunfire and Moondancer did. Quentin wants to ride a dragon, and he wants to marry the Amethyst Empress Reborn, Daenerys Targaryen, trademark Dern Durndon, uh, much as Euron does. And of course, Euron is another Bloodstone Emperor Echo, so Bloodstone Emperors are all trying to marry Daenerys. That makes all of Quentin's Cranogman symbolism all the more remarkable, because it's yet another clue that ties the Bloodstone Emperor to Greenseer magic. Quentin is symbolizing the Bloodstone Emperor and a Greenseer dragon. Now, as a final clue about Quentin's Bloodstone Emperor parallels, we hear of his first kiss coming from a set of twins, the fair-haired Drinkwater Twins. The punchline is that Quentin didn't know which one it was that kissed him. But the clue here is about the son having two lunar wives or queens, a pattern we see distinctly with Aegon the Conqueror, Rhaegar, Stannis, Jon Snow, and in more subtle fashion with other Azor High reborn characters, such as we saw in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. To hammer this point home, Cletus Ironwood once suggested to Quentin that although they are thought of as too lowborn for Quentin to marry, he could take one or even both of the Drinkwater twins as paramours after he has his official state marriage to some important lady of a noble house. So while we're talking about the Great Empire of the Dawn and Quentin's links to Greenseer magic and the Bloodstone Emperor, Now is a good time to talk about the eyes of the Bloodstone Emperor. Yes. Now, of course, Bloodstones in the books seem to have been turned black via the whole burning black moonblood thing, as evidenced by the greasy black stone and the many instances of burning being associated with turning blood black. But real Bloodstone is mostly dark green and flecked with spots of bright red that look like spatters of blood. And so I tend to think of the Bloodstone Emperor as probably, at least after his transformation, as having either black eyes or fiery red eyes. But if we want to follow the pattern of the Gemstone Emperors having eyes to match their gems, then perhaps the Bloodstone Emperor started out with eyes that were dark green and blood red, which are the colors of the eyes of Greenseers, who have eyes as green as the moss on a tree in the heart of the deep forest, yes, but also eyes as red as blood. If you were to mix those two, you'd have the exact appearance of Bloodstone. You'd also have one freaky-looking dude. (laughs) As we turn back to Quentin the Dragon Tamer, we find more relevant symbolism, much of it related to the Sea Dragon. We know that a torch can be symbolic of Lightbringer, such as with Mithras's sword and torch, or such as when the comet is called Mormont's torch. And of course, a torch is really just a fancy name for a burning brand, such as the Drowned God Carries. In the quote from the scene where Quentin enters the dragon chamber and beholds Rhaegal's glorious visage, it says that the light of Quentin's torch washed over scales of dark green. That's a quick, subtle depiction of Azor Ahai, the Bloodstone Emperor, using Lightbringer the torch to create a green dragon, or to make one appear, if you will. 
and it also gives us watery fire dragon symbolism, implying Regal as a sea dragon because it's washing over his green scales. Similarly, when Regal opened his furnace mouth, it said that light and heat washed over Quentin and his party. All of this fire washing also reminds us of Daenerys imagining herself cleansed in the alchemical wedding bonfire and hints at Quentin's upcoming symbolic fire transformation. What's really cool is that those burning wooden dragons that Aegon the Unworthy made get a great reference just as Quent and company prepare to try to steal the dragons. Here, the references to the Grey King myths kick into overdrive. The big man looked out toward the terrace. I knew it would rain, he said in a gloomy tone. My bones were aching last night. They always ache before it rains. The dragons won't like this. Fire and water don't mix, and that's a fact. You get a good cook fire lit, blazing away nice, then it starts to piss down rain, and the next thing, your wood is sodden and your flames are dead. Jarrus chuckled. <laughs> Dragons are not made of wood, Arch. Some are. That old King Aegon, the randy one, he built wooden dragons to conquer us. That ended bad, though. So may this, the prince thought. The follies and failures of Aegon the Unworthy did not concern him, but he was full of doubts and misgivings. Yeah, so may this, yes. Yes, indeed. So here we have a direct association between Quentin, the burning frogman's attempt to ride the green dragon, and the burning wooden dragons of King Aegon the Randy, which evoked the sea dragon and the burning tree myths. What's really great is the wildfire joke here. Arch says that fire and water do not mix, for when it pisses down rain, your fire dies. But not if that piss is pyromancer's piss, as wildfire is called. And in fact, that's exactly what Aegon's wooden dragons burned with, wildfire. So fire and water don't mix unless we're talking about wildfire or about the sea dragon, who swims in the sea yet possesses living fire. I'm my name's Naga, and I'm swimming in the sea. Anyways, just as the sea dragon is functioning as a metaphor for the living fire of a weirwood, which a green seer can possess, I think it's pretty easy to see how wildfire, green fire, does something similar, uniting fire symbolism and green seer symbolism. Green fire also goes hand in hand with green fire dragons, which are also symbols of fiery green seers, as we've been seeing today. The fact that wildfire is a liquid seems an apt way to refer to the sea dragon's fire and the ironborn's idea of bringing fire out of the sea. More on this next week. Now, after Quentin's attempt fails and Viserion and Regal escape the pit, Regal takes up residence in the Black Pyramid of Yerazan, which still smolders with fires. The description of it is worth quoting and it comes from the opening of Barristan's chapter of A Dance with Dragons, called The Queen's Hand. The Dornish prince was three days in dying. He took his last shuddering breath in the bleak black dawn, as cold rain hissed from a dark sky to turn the brick streets of the old city to rivers. The rain had drowned the worst of the fires, but wisps of smoke still rose from the smoldering ruin that had been the pyramid of Hazkar and the great black pyramid of Yerazan, where Rhaegal had made his lair, hulled in the gloom like a fat woman bedecked with glowing orange jewels. Mountains and pyramids, especially the tops of them, 
which is where Rhaegal makes his lair, can symbolize moons. So the notion of a green dragon living in a black pyramid could imply a tie between the burnt black fire moon and the green dragon. Calling that pyramid a fat woman with fiery jewels strengthens the lunar symbolism. A full moon is often called fat on occasion, and moon figures are usually women. And therefore, the fat woman with glowing jewels description of the Black Pyramid also suggests a burning moon goddess, one who harbors a green sea dragon. The reference to drowning the worst of the fire once again evokes the drowned fire symbolism of the Ironborn, the sea dragon rising from the sea with fire, and the drowned god carrying the burning brand out of the ocean. It's especially meaningful to get a drowned fire reference in such close proximity to discussion of the green dragon, and it's yet another clue linking the green dragon to drowned fire and thus to the sea dragon. Recall Quentin's torchlight washing over Rhaegal's green scales. Finally, take note of Quentin's three days to die thing. It seems like it might be a parallel to Jesus being dead for three days before his resurrection. Azor Ahai the Burning Man is the Jesus savior figure of the story in terms of archetypes, and we do indeed find Jesus parallels with Jon Snow and other Azor Ahai players. In fact, these lines about Quentin taking three days to die are the opening lines of this Barristan chapter, and they're actually the first words that follow Jon's death scene, which ends the previous chapter. As I've mentioned before, I've found that Martin sometimes likes to carry over a symbolic train of thought from one chapter to the next, and this would be one of those times. John manifests the symbolism of Azor High and the Bloodstone Emperor quite strongly, just like Quentin, so his death is symbolically the same thing as Quentin's. Bairston ties the two chapters together, actually, because as he's searching the Black Dawn sky for signs of Daenerys, the dragon, we read... He saw no sign of dragons but he had not expected to. The dragons did not like the rain. A thin red slash marked the eastern horizon where the sun might soon appear. It reminded Selmy of the first blood welling from a wound. Often, even with a deep cut, the blood came before the pain. That's exactly what just happened to John. He was sliced across the neck by Wick Whittlestick, and the blood instantly welled beneath his fingers, though he did not seem to feel it thinking that it was only a scratch. But welling blood that quickly means that John's jugular was almost certainly cut open. And by the way, there's not many nerve endings right there, so you actually don't feel those wounds uh, very much, which is why he rapidly loses feeling in his fingers, can't draw his sword, and loses consciousness before he can even be stabbed three more times. That's all evidence of a jugular wound. He wouldn't be losing his consciousness that quickly unless his jugular was cut. And so that's what I think is happening here. The people who think John actually hasn't died are almost certainly wrong. Wah, wah, that's okay, though. He's coming back. John is dead. He's sliced across the neck like a true sacrifice by Wick Whittlestick. Consider that name, by the way. Wick, as in Candlewick, implying fire. Or Wick, like Wicker Man, whose fate is to burn. And Whittlestick implies carved wood, like a heart tree. Thus, we have very strong burning weirwood symbolism here at John's death, which makes sense, of course. You could definitely call Wick a weirwood assassin figure. Wick Whittlestick's name also calls out to Old Wick of the Iron Islands, where the sea dragon bones rest, so I think we are safe to say this is no coincidence. And, of course, John's spirit is then headed into Ghost, who looks like a weirwood. Painkiller Jane, a.k.a. Lady Jane of House Celtigar, Emerald of the Evening and Captain of the Dreadship Eclipse Wind, 
who is of course a frequent contributor to mythical astronomy, has a great observation here which further unites the symbolism of John and Quentin. The name Quentin is phonetically very similar to Quintain, which is a post set up as a mark in tilting with a lance. The most famous one we get in A Song of Ice and Fire just so happens to be made out of straw and has antlers on it, making it a symbolic king of winter and a horned lord. Of course, I'm referring to the endearing scene where Tommen jousts against a child-sized leather warrior stuffed with straw and mounted on a pivot, which someone had fastened a pair of antlers to in order to make it signify the rebel and traitor king Renly Baratheon. We recognize the symbol of a strawman knight easily enough, since we talk about the burning scarecrow strawman Night's Watch brothers so often, and strawmen also make us think of the burning King of Winter and Wicker Man mythologies that the burning scarecrow brothers are based on. Indeed, the strawman Quintain in the Tommen scene is compared to Renly, and of course when we see Garland Tyrell masquerading as resurrected Renly at the Battle of the Blackwater, the fires of the battle reflect golden off of his antlers and ghostly green off of his armor, implying him as a resurrected burning stag man. As we discussed earlier, the fiery sorcerers we find waking from burning wood are almost certainly meant to represent the fiery undead Night's Watch green zombies, and they share all the same King of Winter and Wicker Man symbolism. John has all of that symbolism in spades, of course, and that makes sense, as John is set up to be the signature undead skin-changer Night's Watch zombie, and quite possibly he'll be resurrected through fire. Quentin, on the other hand, also has the Green Seer skin-changer symbolism by way of his frog, mudman, and green dragon rider stuff, and of course he has the most vivid kind of Burning Man symbolism possible. So is Martin implying Quentin as a Quintain? A straw man knight? And a symbolic king of winter set to burn? Well, it makes perfect sense. The wicker man and the king of winter figures are essentially sacrifices that burn, and that's exactly what Quentin is. So, combining the symbolism of the end of John's chapter and the beginning of Barristan's, what we have is John being sacrificed by a burning tree person, which overlays with Quentin being turned into a burning man by a green dragon and then taking three days to die. And then we have a black dawn, the red comet wound in the sky, the green dragon taking up residence in a fat black moon pyramid, which still smolders with fire. Then fire is drowned, and men look to the sky for a morning star dragon, Daenerys, to save them and bring back the sun. It's all pretty great stuff, right? Interestingly, I've found that the description of Rhaegal being trapped inside the pit actually mirrors Quentin's death. The following is from A Dance with Dragons and comes after Danny recalls that they had managed to chain Viserion in his sleep with relatively little struggle. Rhaegal had been harder. Perhaps he could hear his brother raging in the pit, despite the walls of brick and stone between them. In the end, they had to cover him with a net of heavy iron chain as he basked on her terrace, and he fought so fiercely that it had taken three days to carry him down the servant's steps twisting and snapping. Six men had been burned in the struggle. Quentin takes three days to die. Regal takes three days to be carried down to the Stygian darkness of the pit, an obvious hellish underworld location. Regal made Quentin into a burning man and sent him to hell, and here we see that he creates six burned men as he's dragged down below the pyramid. Don't miss the awesome green seer weirwood net clue here, of course. Regal is trapped in a net. 
Hello, Weirwoodnet as a trap for Greenseer's symbolism. It's a trap. That's a really nice one. It's trap, different kind of trap. All right. That's a nice one because it equates the symbolic death and journey to the underworld of the green dragon with being trapped in the weirwood net. Think again of Blood Raven, a dragon chained up by the weirwood roots down in a dark underworld cave full of bones, just like Regal's pit full of bones. Think of this as an as above, so below mirror image. Down below, we have Regal chained up in the darkness below the pyramid, but then later Regal makes a lair in the smoldering black pyramid after he escapes. This is very similar to Odin going up and down Yggdrasil like a ladder to the various realms, or like the green seer's body sitting below the weirwood while his spirit uses the weirwood to fly. The image of a fiery green dragon surrounded by blackness is identical whether he's at the top or at the bottom of the pyramid, because the green seer really exists both below the tree and soaring above them at the same time. It's a matching symbol, gives it to us in two places and in two forms, a chained up version below and a set free version above, because the green seer is chained up below and set free when he flies above the treetops, if you will. Oh, and of course, I guess I should add that you could think of the pyramid and the all-seeing eye symbol that's on our money, of course, like the all-seeing eye is at the top of the pyramid, and that's very much kind of what George is creating here with the liberated green dragon making a lair at the top of the pyramid. So there's a possible parallel for this symbol of a green dragon inside the black pyramid in the placement of the dragon's eggs around Drogo's corpse at the beginning of the alchemical wedding scene. Check this out. She climbed the pyre herself to place the eggs around her sun and stars. The black by his heart, under his arm, the green beside his head, his braid coiled around it, the cream and gold down between his legs. It could be that the green is placed by his head to signify vision, knowledge, enlightenment, that sort of thing. Again, it's very similar to the eye at the top of the pyramid. Green seeing is done with the mind and the third eye, in other words. Drogo's oily black braid coils around the green egg, surrounding it, giving us a similar image to the green dragon living inside the smoldering black pyramid or below the pyramid in the black pit when he's chained up. And as we've discussed before, Drogo's hair is also given water symbolism in A Game of Thrones when his braid is undone. It says, His hair spread out behind him like a river of darkness, oiled and gleaming. The green dragon egg placed in Drogo's black oily river of darkness hair is therefore more sea dragon symbolism, depicting a green dragon that lives or wakes from the darkling sea. The black sea in particular is, of course, a reference to the cosmic ocean of space, which again speaks to the green seer's ability to travel time and space through their bond with the weirwoods. That fits very well with the green egg being placed by the head, I'd say, and again with the green dragon as the eye of the pyramid. Consider that this is all happening with Drogo, a signature Azor High Solar King. He awakens from the Lightbringer bonfire as a fiery sorcerer who rides the smoky, burning ash tree, smoky stallion to the sky so that he can then ride the red comet as a star horse. That's what they believe, anyways. He's like a green seer dragon defying death and swimming in the dark ocean of space through the use of the weirwood net, the burning tree. Oddly enough, Danny thinks about touching the comet one time, right after being inspired by her green dragon Regal trying to fly. 
Across the tent, Rhaegal unfolded green wings to flap and flutter a half foot before thumping to the carpet. When he landed, his tail lashed back and forth in fury, and he raised his head and screamed. If I had wings, I would want to fly too, Danny thought. The Targaryens of old had ridden upon Dragonback when they went to war. She tried to imagine what it would feel like to straddle a dragon's neck and soar high into the air. It would be like standing on a mountaintop, only better. The whole world would be spread out below. If I flew high enough, I could even see the Seven Kingdoms and reach up and touch the comet. Whoa, boy. Does being a green seer dragon have something to do with touching comets? Or is this a metaphor for using green seer magic to reach for the fire of the gods? Well, that's a question we'll have to return to another time. That's pretty much it for today, though I do have a bit of bonus material here to act as a cool down from the sheer raw intensity of touching comets and flying through space. Although I do promise you we are going to follow up with all of the Astro Brand theories and flying comet theories and all that stuff. Ravenous Reader will be Satan, don't worry. But returning to the placement of the eggs around Drogo and the Pyre, if I were to speculate further about the placement of the other two eggs... I would say that the black one by his heart makes a lot of sense, as we've seen that meteors can be described as the hearts of fallen stars, and the black meteors would be black hearts, for which there is abundant correlating black heart symbolism with the Zorhai, which you guys and gals are all familiar with, such as Robert swearing about Rhaegar's black heart right in like one of the very first chapters. As for the white dragon placed in Drogo's crotch... Well, that's kind of a too big of a topic to open up right now, and I'd be tempted to use up all my good penis jokes that I really should save for the White Dragon episode. I mean, you don't want to fire your gun before the time is right. Oh, sorry. I do have one more serious observation about the alchemical bonfire and the cracking of the eggs. It seems that the three cracks of the eggs pretty much relate to the sequence of the Long Night disaster in detail. Check this out. So the first egg cracks with the sound of shattering stone, as Drogo's flaming lash snaked down at the pyre, hissing. That's the snaky lightbringer comet striking the moon and shattering its stone. This is the white egg, and it's definitely associated with the moon, because as Danny is showered with ash and cinders, and as the roaring filled the world, at Danny's feet lands a chunk of curved rock, pale and veined with gold, broken and smoking. A pale stone crescent is a clear moon symbol, especially when it's a dragon's egg, so that is what this first crack is all about, the, the breaking of the moon. Then comes the second crack, as loud and sharp as thunder, and with it, the fire that touches the secret hearts of the wooden logs. This is the storm god's thunderbolt descending from the moon and setting fire to the heart tree, if you will. Right after this is when Danny thinks to herself, I am Daenerys Stormborn, and then comes the line about stepping into the firestorm. So as I pointed out, the green dragon's egg hatching, everything is related to storm and thunder symbolism. So I have to think this is about the thunderbolt coming from the moon and setting fire to the tree. And finally comes the breaking of the world as the black dragon's egg, the black bloodstone, cracks open to birth the black dragon. This, I believe, is the hammer of the waters meteor striking the arm of Dorne and splitting the continents apart, breaking the world. This is the sun spear, which beats down like a fiery hammer, as we read in A Feast for Crows. The evidence is found in the names left around the broken arm. Bloodstone Island and sun spear, as we've discussed, 
And, of course, there's also Ghost Hill of House Toland, whose arms, as it happens, bear a green dragon on a yellow circle. The other named Stepstone Island is called Grey Gallows, which we know refers to the gallows tree, Yggdrasil, and perhaps the Grey King, whose weirwood throne is the Song of Ice and Fire equivalent of Yggdrasil. So there you have it. Three-step process as told by Danny's Dragons, from comet-moon collision to falling thunderbolt to hammer of the waters. Now that we've begun to unravel the symbolism of the green dragon and the burning tree, we can see the whole picture from this scene, which we've discussed many times previously. And that just kind of goes to show how densely Martin's ideas are layered in. So that is the green dragon. And once again, next week will kind of be part two, and it will be called, let's see, The Devil and the Deep Green Sea. And we're going to keep going with the symbolism. We're pretty much going to pick right up where we left off, so... Thanks for joining us on Mythical Astronomy, and I'll see you next week.